Welcome to the Stefan Levira Podcast. All right, guys, welcome to this show. And my guest today is Rusty. Welcome, Rusty. Well, thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, I've heard a lot about you, Rusty. So just to quickly introduce you to the listeners, Rusty is a very well-known and respected developer within Bitcoin and Lightning, and he previously came from a background of Linux kernel development. So he currently works at Blockstream as part of the Elements project on the Blockstream Lightning implementation known as C-Lightning. And on top of that, he's also written some great articles and given some really cool talks on Bitcoin development, such as his talk, Future Technological Directions in Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, the, the thing I was hoping to start with today was your article, The Three Economic Eras of Bitcoin. So uh, in this article, you basically say the way the Bitcoin ecosystem will play out is written in the mathematics of its consensus rules. We should all know the three phases it will go through. Now, I thought this is a really prescient article and you showed a lot of foresight. So can you give us a bit of a background on this one, Rusty? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that came from partially from my frustration uh, with the um, the events leading up to what became the big block size debate. Um, and that was really that, um, you know, we, we knew this transition to fees was going to happen, right? This was always written there, right? You know, um, mining rewards, the free money phase was going to end and we were going to enter into this, you know, <laughs> you know, the free offer is over, you know, you have to pay for your Bitcoin now. And I think it was it was just it was kind of glossed over and grossly unappreciated in the early days. Partially, I think, because it was so far away, but also because there's a kind of boosterism, you know, like you know, with us or against us. It was you know, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And you know, any kind of message that 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 contained caution or you know, like there be dragons or you know, things ahead was very much attenuated, right? So. It, it, it led to this kind of um, this this case where people were like, but 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 I thought Bitcoin was you know instant and free and everything else. And I was like, well, whoa, 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 you know that that it was never those things, right? Um, Bitcoin was free when nobody wanted it. Um, Satoshi made it very clear in the paper that the plan was to transition across to a fee basis, supported by inflation to begin with, but that was supposed to taper out, right? So um, you know when you have people going, but but hold on. You know, fees are too high and everything like that. You go, look, you know, they may be higher than, you know, uh, you may prefer at the moment, but we were always going to have this at some point, right? And the argument is, you know, well, it should it be now, should it be later? But with no centralized control to, to put their hand on the lever, it's going to happen when it's going to happen. And so people who were horrified by what Bitcoin had become, um, I was amazed that these people, had, you know, like, like, you know, how did they get this impression that Bitcoin was going to be like, you know, this 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 free money system the whole time, and so from that that started me thinking right okay so it was the first phase where basically you know nobody wanted Bitcoin it was it was completely free you could just send as much as you wanted around the world there was no fees it was all great right um, that early bootstrapping phase um, you know the Satoshi's free money phase um, but you know it was quite clear that that was going to end I think we've seen this with with you know any service that starts free and then you try to charge for it, right? There's going to be a certain number of users who go, but I thought it was always going to be free. Um, and in Bitcoin's case, it was very clear that this was going to end. Um, and see, seeing people's reactions to that, you know, that transition um, made me realize that, you know, we, we're very early on in that change, right? You got a little taste of fees, right? Um, but that's going to be the norm. If Bitcoin is to survive and become self-sustaining, the mining fees, the miners who secure the network are going to be paid by you and me. 
on a transaction basis, right? Every transaction is going to have to chip in something. Now, hmm. ideally, you know, we'll get as many transactions to, to share that burden as possible. But, you know, it's never going to be enough. You do the math and you go, well, what if you have one cent transaction fees and we want to like give the miners, pay the miners a billion dollars a year? Well, you know, that's going to be huge, uh, unattainable blocks. So it's, it's going to be somewhere in the middle, right? Fees are going to be, you know, higher than you would hope. Um, I'd bet, you know, as low as, as low as they can be because we cram as many transactions in as we can. So that's, that's, that's where we're headed. And we're not there yet. So, you know, there is going to be like this, this third phase, hence the, the three economic errors. Uh, at one point, it's going to become inevitable that on-chain is going to cost, you know, real money. And it's, it, it, you're not going to have these, you know, e- even when it was busy, you tended to get like it, things would lull on the weekends, for example, right? So you could get your cheaper transactions through on the weekends because, you know, traffic would drop again. Um, you know, at some stage, people will have optimized for all these tricks and we'll get a pretty steady flow. Um, and it will keep fees high, um, and that has to happen because you know that that's what's paying for the network. Um, and given people's reactions so far, and their 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 how incredulous they were that this was the way Bitcoin worked, I don't think that message has really gotten out there. So I do anticipate that there will be a push as that becomes a reality for these businesses who built their whole business on this idea that Bitcoin is free. Um, the transactions are, 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 are trivially small. Um, they will push back against the idea, and they will, you know, I, I think the obvious thing for them to do is to advocate for a hard fork, which just continues to inflate Bitcoin. Yeah, right? sure, sure. Uh, you know, hey, why why should the people using Bitcoin pay for it? Why shouldn't the people just holding Bitcoin pay for it? Right? That's the that's the inflation argument. You know, and so you know, I think it's important to kind of make that clear so people aren't blindsided by it, there's going to be a very, very strong push to to break the 21 million Bitcoin cap um, and to continue to pay the miners. The miners will obviously be in favor of it because free money, right? Um, and, you know, the, the big businesses who are transacting on the network, you know, just, you know, the accountants there will go, hey, we are paying, you know, we're having to charge our customers, you know, what, half a billion dollars a year? Um, you know, we could pass those costs on to the rest of the network and not have to pay it ourselves, right? So they will definitely advocate for it. Um, you know, and I think you know, there's rational economic reasons to argue one way or the other, but it doesn't really matter because I think it's pretty clear that Bitcoin was defined, um, you know, and people bought into Bitcoin on this idea that there was a $21 million limit. So I think it's going to be extremely strong pushback, but that doesn't mean that people won't try. So I certainly expect this this third phase, where, as I said, I think in the article, you know, the third phase is going to begin with civil war. There is going to be this massive push um, by interested parties, uh, particularly those who built their business on cheap transactions, to keep them cheap and you know use inflation to support the network. Yeah, sure. And I think just to sort of keep it accessible for the sort of newbies, what we'll do is just kind of explain a little bit around how Bitcoin's structure is. Uh, could you just outline a little bit around what what is that pressure that drives the fees up? Right. Okay. Well, that's 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 actually not such a such a sort of you know, a beginner question, really. Um, so, sort of from a high level, with you know the the miners are rewarded by minting new coins, right? And every four years that halves. So it started at fifty bitcoin, went to twenty five. It's now twelve and a half. In another two years, it'll drop to six point two five. Um, the other money that that miners get is from 
Bitcoin fees, right? Every transaction pays a fee. Now, because there's a limited amount of transactions they can cram into each block, um, obviously miners choose the one that pay the most fees per weight, right? So given the size of the transaction, you know, they, they take the ones that'll basically give them the most money. Um, and that means when there is pressure um, for, uh, you know, there's, there's, when there's more transactions that will fit in a block, um, that leads to this kind of bidding war. Where you know those who pay most will get them their their transactions mined first. You know they will be processed first. Um, now, particularly when we went through the last fee spike, when you know transaction volume exceeded the block capacity, and that's before we had the block size increase that was segwit. Um, we saw some crazy. You know it peaked at something. You know average transactions paying things like 55 US and stuff like that. That was actually pretty unusual, but we did see some spikes, and a part of that was. The infrastructure wasn't there. People didn't know, couldn't deal with it, right? So you had websites basically saying, this is the transaction fee. If you want your money, that's what you're going to have to pay. Um, they didn't give you an option. Hey, you know, if, if you're prepared to wait a little bit, perhaps we could try a lower fee. You know, um, it was very, very primitive because there had never been this crisis before. So as a result, fees spiked. I mean, imagine, you know, you've got 60 bucks in this website. It says, you know, do you want your money? It's going to cost $55 to get out. You complain, but it doesn't present you with any other options. So yeah. damn it, that's what you pay, right? And we saw people doing that. They were complaining about transaction fees, but they were still paying it. Um, you know, things have gotten a lot better with stuff like that. Um, you know, with with replaced by fee, so that you can, you know, once again, like you used to be able to in the original Bitcoin days, send a transaction and then replace it. You know, if you go, okay, well, I, I kind of lowballed that fee. I've been waiting half an hour, still not through. Let's let's replace it with a, you know, a slightly more generous one. Um, which gives you a lot more ability to control your fees, and, and software is getting more sophisticated as well. So, you know, next time we have a fee spike, we're hopefully in a much better place to deal with this, um, and it won't be so. You know, there will still be people who will just throw money at it. If, you, if you're transferring $100 million, you know, you, you pay a 50-buck fee. You don't care. Um, but for the rest of us, I think, you know, having more sophisticated software will definitely help with this sort of bidding process. Um, sure, but, sure. How about oh, – sorry, go on. No, no, no. Please. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say, uh, related to that, could you talk, could you talk a little bit about how fee estimation was very basic in the past and how that's gotten better? Right. So, so fee estimation, um, oh, I would argue fee estimation is still pretty basic. You're trying to guess. So the problem is blocks don't come in every ten minutes, right? They come in, you know, approximately, you know, average every ten minutes. But you know, it, there's some probability that it will take forty minutes before someone gets lucky, right? Uh, or it could come in really fast. So you can tell just from that, it's almost impossible to guess how much you would have to pay to get in, you know, the, the, the you know, some, some like the second block or something. You don't know how long it'll be. You don't know, you know, how, how much things will pile up, right? Uh, you're kind of trying to get in there. So you're, you know, so you're in that first chunk of, of transactions, the best transactions. You don't need to be the best. You just need to be good enough that, the miner will go, great, I'll, I can include that in your block. So you're trying to hit that cutoff. Um, and over time, more people will come in with more transactions. Um, and if it's been a while between blocks, you know that's going to increase. People are going to go, well, I really, really want this in. And they'll start bidding higher and higher. Um, so it is actually kind of a hard problem. Um, we've gotten slightly better at handling it uh, with software. But more importantly, um, the ability to replace things by fee means you can start low. You can guess conservatively. Go, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to guess and hope this slides in. And then I can replace it later if I have to, right? Um, yeah. And that was missing um, in a lot of software um, last time we had the fee spike. So you kind of went, I don't want to get stuck with this transaction that never confirms. So damn it, I'm going to 
go cautious and I'm going to bid high on the fees. And when everyone does that, of course, you create this problem that, you know, it's if everyone's bidding high, you have no choice but to bid high as well. So I think that itself will, will significantly change the factors uh, when we see fee pressure. Sure, sure. And I think there were some other factors you mentioned in the article in the second era, Satoshi's subsidy, and you mentioned a few underlying reasons behind why Bitcoin developers were reluctant to so-called naively increase the on-chain block size or block weight. And a few reasons you mentioned were it's a one-off bump hazard, the devs want to follow the community, and also software and services we're still preparing and that also transitions should be gradual. Can you outline a little bit of the thinking on that? Yeah, so, um, you know, the, the obvious thing was, you know, well, you know, crap, fees are too high, we should enlarge, um, uh, you know, we should enlarge the blocks, we should just allow more transactions in every block, right? Um, yeah. And the pushback against that was, well, that we knew fees were going to get, you know, uncomfortably high at some point, right? Nobody's going to be happy paying a billion dollars a year to miners, right? So, you know, it might, you might, the argument then becomes, well, but not now, right? It's just, yeah, just, just not yet, right? But that argument is a very slippery slope, right? When are people going to turn out, no, no, now is a good time to have high fees. They're not going to, right? So, you know, there's always been an argument that you should try to kick the can down the road. So it was, you know, that was a reason not to do it. But also, um, Doing the enlargement itself is problematic because previously, when we had seen um, a block size increase, uh, which which had happened in a couple of previous occasions, it had definitely driven uh, huge amounts of centralization. And the reason is that um, as a miner, the, the longer it takes for your blocks to propagate, uh, the more chance that somebody else pips you and gets in before you do. So bigger blocks actually make it harder to profitably mine. The different the but if you're a really big miner, then that gives you a significant advantage of everyone else because your chances are you're going to find the next block yourself, in which case, obviously, you, you, you don't worry about how long it takes for the rest of the world to find out about your block. And so we definitely saw in practice that miners all jumped onto the hugest pool they could find when blocks jumped and they started, you know, and they started feeling that they were, had more chance of losing out. Um, because of this this block propagation problem, we spent a lot of the developers have certainly spent a lot of effort trying to improve block propagation, um, but they're very cautious about that. The other thing is that enlarging, doing a naive, you know, just double it kind of thing, will be the first backwards incompatible change since Bitcoin's introduction, right? A so-called hard fork. Um, previously, everything has been backwards compatible. Like if you can dig out a 0.32 version of Bitcoin, in theory at least, with a couple of bug fixes, you can sync that. To today's Bitcoin, right? It will accept the chain. It's no, it won't get upset at any point. So it's a big deal to force everyone to upgrade. You know, um, you have been allowed to run, you know, old versions of Bitcoin. They will still work. So um, the developers feel that that's a big deal. It has to be really, really critical um, to force everybody uh, to change their software. Um, but the other thing which was really interesting is, that, you know. Despite the fact that we knew fees were coming, they were going to do this and everything else, very few people proved to be prepared for it. Um, you know, Bitcoin Core had fee estimation and they pushed and you know, replaced by fee and everything else, but everyone else was pretty much caught with their pants down. Um, so it's pretty clear that unless there's actual pressure, you know, people will defer it and they'll be working on other stuff. Um, so, you know, large companies that should know better um, still these days are not batching transactions or doing other things. They're just grossly unprepared for the next fee spike. So 
it's pretty horrible to see, you know, uh, to sort of treat it this way. But you go, well, if we if we give them relief now, then they won't ever do that work, right? They're never going to actually get their act together. And, you know, so, so there's, there's like a second order of kicking the can down the road where they start relying on the stuff that you're, you know, on the fact that you will just save them again next time. Um, and they'll never actually, you know, do the optimizations that they need to handle this case. Sure. And that in some ways they were, you know, the large miners were in a sense getting themselves, a, would get themselves a bit of a protective moat if the blocks are larger. And some businesses are able to basically socialize their costs rather than do the engineering work required to, you know, use up less of the blocks chain, so to speak. That's so right. could you outline some of the, uh, some of the techniques that businesses can, or perhaps in your view, maybe they should be using to try and minimize the impact on the blockchain, yeah. such as transaction batching, etc. Yeah. So transaction batching is the obvious one, right? If you're paying out regular payments, um, you can actually group those together because, you know, when you, when, when, you know, so, so I'm paying you like 10 bucks for something. Usually what happens is I don't have a 10, uh, like a $10 output to spend. So I take a hundred dollar output, I pay you 10 and I pay 90 and change back to me. Right. Um, but if I'm paying two people at once, it scales quite well because I have you know ten dollars to you, ten dollars to someone else, and eighty dollars changed to me. Right? That's transaction batching. Right? So you can get you know almost a factor of two improvement just by batching your transactions together. Sometimes that means just you know you only send out one big transaction every five minutes or something. Sometimes it means you do slightly smarter things where you send out like a really low fee transaction that pays to you, so you instantly see it, um, and then come along later with a replacement transaction that pays sort of a, you know, a more reasonable higher fee, uh, but you know batches all of the payments I've sent out previously. Now, that's the, the, you know, the technology to do that is still kind of you know, really kind of sinking in. Um, but that's definitely the way you know we will see the large organizations going, and many of them, many of them do. Many exchanges already batch. Some of them, in fact, did that for quite a while. Surprisingly, some of the large organizations still do not batch their payments, um, and uh, it's not clear why they're not doing that. Maybe they're burning VC money and they don't care. Um, maybe there's a point of pride in going, you know, hey, we're responsible for thirty percent of the transaction volume. Uh, even if that's a completely meaningless and, in fact, a negative statistic, um, you know, perhaps that's part of their pitch deck, right? <laughs> when they're trying to raise more money, this is, this is what they say: "Hey, you know, we're, we're dominant in the space because we use more block space than everyone else." Um, so, you know, it's, that's just a pet theory of mine. It may be completely false, um, but also no, but that's a funny way of putting it. Yeah, but also some of these businesses are built on Bitcoin as if it's a finished thing. Right, they kind of went, cool. Well, our business is, you know, uh, doing KYC and doing, you know, uh, getting getting licenses and all that stuff. And the Bitcoin stuff is really, you know, we it's something we sit on top of, right? Um, and this is um, something we see. You know, the, the free rider kind of problem is something we see a lot in the open source world early on, when people really didn't understand that if you're basing your business on something, you need to be involved in its development. Um, you know, Bitcoin is not a finished product. Um, there are still improvements to be made. And if you're not in there, then one, you're going to be unaware of how to use it well. Um, but also, you know, <clears throat> I think you know, it, it develops this kind of mis- distrust between the people who are actually doing the work and you trying to earn money off them. And I think that makes, you know, it, it's unstable if you're trying to take it for granted. And I think this is a lesson that's slowly being learned in the Bitcoin space. Unfortunately, we're seeing more support of, you know, the core development um, that so many companies are relying on for their um, their valuations. Mm, yeah, 
All right. And now in your article, one quote that you use from Satoshi Nakamoto is, once a predetermined number of coins have entered circulation, the incentive can transition entirely to transaction fees and be completely inflation free. So now the question then is, do you think Satoshi, whoever he, she, they are, do you think they thought it would happen this soon or were they, do you think they were thinking more like 2140? Definitely before 2140, right? I mean, um, because it's an exponential decay. So, t- so, so 2140 is the point at which you know the last Satoshi uh, block reward um, is, is is paid out, right? This block, last block subsidy is paid out, right? Um, but it's 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 insignificant long before then. In fact, you know we're already down a quarter from the original, right? We'll be down to an eighth of the original amount when you know, in in a couple of years' time. So, um, we've already seen a couple of cases of you know the the fees in blocks being sort of, you know, comparable with half of, you know, uh, the current block reward. So it's it's quite possible that that becomes more normal, but certainly I would expect in the next 10 years, so another like three halvings, um, by that point, you know, we really are getting down to an eighth of what you're getting paid now for each block. Um, I think it's pretty clear that it was going to be in the sort of the, the 10 to 25 year range of Bitcoin that this would happen. But of course, it depends a lot on the actual value of Bitcoin, right? If Bitcoin doubles in price, then it doesn't matter that the reward halves. And so there's there's a huge external factor there, adding this big random component. But it was pretty clear, it would have been pretty clear at the time that, you know, uh, after seven halvings, you know, you're down to 128th of the original point, you know, that that's that's looking pretty lean, Right, so um, it was pretty clear that that transition would 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 happen, you know, within sort of my lifetime kind of thing. It was never going to be like twenty one hundred. Yeah, sure, sure. And as you mentioned, if the Bitcoin price doubles every four years in fiat terms, obviously, this then at least counterbalances the block subsidy that's halving every four years, and then once you add in transaction fees, and I wonder whether that would be enough. Yeah, so that's that's interesting, but I mean, at some point, it really does vanish, and you can't keep doubling forever. Um, yeah, sure. You know, so uh, the other thing is that at the moment, you know, as a miner, most of your costs probably are in some kind of fiat currency. But you know, as, if Bitcoin becomes more successful, then that will change. So the, the tone of the conversation changes. If you're not converting all your Bitcoin, then suddenly, you know, I think that you know, a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin, right? So, so the fact that the reward is paying less Bitcoins does become an issue. Um, but also we've seen the, you know, I mean, obviously the cost to run the network now is a lot, lot higher than it was when it was Satoshi and one and his first peer, whoever that was. Right. So, um, you know, at the moment we're paying, I, I haven't done the sums recently, but you know, we kind of said, I think I, I had some rough numbers based on the, the, the previous Bitcoin price in the article, uh, on what we were paying for, you know, for, for mining. And I think it's, you know, it's well in excess of a billion dollars a year. Um, yeah. You know, so you know, in practice, the price going up of Bitcoin just means that we spend more money on mining. Um, so, you know, there's a valid question of like, how much money do we need to spend on mining? How secure do we need the network to be? Um, and the number is pretty high. If if you're using real economic value across Bitcoin, you know, you need to make the cost of attacking it equally large. So, you know, even even if Bitcoin gets, you know, uh, even if Bitcoin goes up in value, then you could argue that well. You need that value. You need that reward for miners because now you're protecting more stuff. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it's it's an interesting piece that, that you're making a point that you're making there that 
there are multiple moving pieces here. So obviously you got the price of Bitcoin, but then you've also got the so-called level of security that Bitcoin provides. I mean, at various points in Bitcoin's life or cycle, it may have been quote unquote over providing security or under providing the kind of socially desired level of security. So as you said, it, it could just simply provide slightly less security or more depends on how much people want to spend for that. Um, so the, yeah, the next thing I was curious to get your thoughts on is, could you outline just some of your thoughts on what happened with the late 2017, the No2X saga? Wow. Okay. So that's, that's obviously a big topic, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, basically what I was trying to understand is, do you think the, you know, this coming battle could be resolved in a similar way to that No2X saga? Right. Well, that was, it was kind of heartening to see, um, to see some people come out of the woodwork and say, well, no, no, look, this is, that is not how we run, run Bitcoin. And, you know, some of that, I think some of those lessons have been learned now. Um, as I said, you know, some of the big businesses are now more aware of how to, to interact with a real open source project. Um, you know, uh, so, so I previously worked for IBM and when IBM started to get involved in Linux and stuff, they had this real, you know, who's in charge problem, right? Like um, if you've got this top-down corporate hierarchy, it's used to dealing with another top-down organization. And, you know, it did their head in to try to, to, to you know, they wanted to have a deal with an entity, right? But this chaotic group of ever-shifting developers um, really took some effort. Um, and the only the fact that there was a significant amount of money involved, you know, did I think they really went through that exercise of, of, of figuring out how to how to deal with that? And you know, there's a whole industry now around Linux that that now knows how to deal um, with open source developments and, and open source developers and the kind of the, the chaotic uh, models that they have. Um, and I think we're seeing the same lessons learned uh, in the Bitcoin space, right? So I think you can put and look at like the No Two X. Um, uh, stuff as you know an interesting lesson in how not to interact with the community and, and the res- responses that you will get if you try that um so i i do think that that it was interesting it, it is heartening to see people stand up and say no actually this is not how bitcoin works right you can't just you know sign a deal with someone and say right we've changed the rules for bitcoin um and it's good that that that, that is not how it works but also the understanding that that's not how it works means that you know um people learn how to interact with with the sort of the Bitcoin ecosystem, um, and because you know, if 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 things gridlock, then at least we get Bitcoin as it is today, right? It doesn't get any better, but it doesn't get any worse. You still keep your Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Um, and so that is the default outcome of any activity in the Bitcoin space. If there's no overwhelming consensus, nothing changes. And really, that's yeah. you know, as sucky as that might be, as sucky as it might have been if we hadn't got Segwit, if it had, you know, if it really had been this untenable, you know, complete lack of consensus, Bitcoin would still be there, right? It would still work, just as, you know, the same as before. It wouldn't have some improvements, wouldn't have some tweaks, wouldn't have some things that we really wanted, but you know, it would have kept going. Uh, and I think that lesson is really important. And somebody in the heat of that whole, you know, everyone was fretting about what was going to happen. Somebody kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, Bitcoin will survive this. Um, worst thing that happens is nothing changes. And really, when you're looking at defaults, that's probably the best default you can have. If there's no consensus, if everyone doesn't agree, nothing moves. Um, and I think that that has now somewhat been learned. Although I suspect, you know, as 
Bitcoin becomes more popular, more people come on board, you know, they may have to learn that lesson two or three times before it sticks. Sure. Yeah. And I think we may, you know, we may see more debates and battles come, come in Bitcoin as, you know, these kinds of things come back and back again. Um, and I think it was interesting to see many people in the community were, well, community, quote unquote, were, you know, using things like hats to sort of signal their, you know, <laughs> that their, alli- their allegiances. Uh, do you think Samson will make a killing selling hats with 21 million on them? Yeah. <laughs> Look, it's it is quite possible um, that that you know we will see the same kind of hat-driven um, uh, you know barometer of, of community uh, community feeling out there. It's, um, I hadn't thought that, but you know maybe I should get in line for uh, for one of those twenty-one million hats. Yeah. So um, it it was important that you know people felt empowered, right? So so people may have these opinions and may not want things to change, but they may also go, well, you know, how, how am I going to oppose some of these, you know, giant companies and things? And I think developing that sense of community made people feel like, oh, actually, there are enough of us that we can actually make this work. Um, so I think the social side of, of, of hats and stuff like that actually is important for people feel they're not just, well, you know, um, tilting against windmills and knowing that there is a, there's a broad base of support for this stuff. Um, I mean, I honestly hope that, that I'm wrong about the third era and that people will learn their lessons before then. But I suspect, given what we've seen, um, people will give it a red-hot go. Yeah, and it may be that the fact that you have now pointed this out and the fact that people are talking about it helps people learn in advance for next time. So I think that's another thing to think about. Yeah, definitely. This the, one of the, the reasons I published this was to try to inoculate people against this, um, so that they, you know, they recognise what it is when it comes. Um, it won't, you know, it, it may well be guised in. Look, you know, we got these Nobel Prize winning economists, and they suggest that the system is far better if we have one percent, you know, inflation and things like that. But um, I think it's important to see where you know where the motivation is. Uh, from those players so you can kind of see through the rationalization of what they're doing um, and yeah. so I think that is important yeah sure sure okay well I think that's a you know that's a good way to finish off that particular part of the discussion let's now change to discussing about your current work in terms of lightning and the elements project at blockstream um, but first rusty if we could just keep this you know accessible for the intelligent layman can you just give a quick background on what is Lightning and what are the key benefits for Bitcoin? Right. Okay. That's that's um, certainly something something that we can do. So um, Bitcoin is this this you know great great system of you know uh, money transfer and everything else, but it is a heavy system, right? So uh, every time you want to spend you know move some Bitcoin, spend it, give it to someone else, um, everyone on the Bitcoin network you know finds out about it they all validate it you know it goes to everyone it all happens and then you know 10 minutes later or so it gets into a block and then you know um and then it gets under enough blocks and people go yep definitely it's it's pretty much nailed there we accept that now Um, that's a really really heavy process so um you know and we talked about why you can't just scale it up and that you know large blocks tend to you know cause centralization and you'll end up with a couple of big miners and then why were you why were you doing all this work in the first place Turns out that about uh, three and a half years ago, um, a paper was released detailing a system you can build on top of this, where two parties will basically put some Bitcoin in, and then they will basically be able to trade it between themselves, and they'll just by swapping transactions. So, so um, 
they put some Bitcoin in, they both have to sign in order to spend it. And they agree that, you know, say 10 bucks is going to you, Stefan. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm taking like, you know, and, and I'm taking 20 bucks. And then I pay you. And so we change it. Okay, let's have a new transaction. It pays you 20, it pays me 10. And we can shuffle money back and forth between ourselves all the time just by swapping these, you know, these signed Bitcoin transactions, knowing that at any point we can take the latest one and we can just kind of like drop it on chain to actually get our money. And because we know we can do that, we don't have to. We can just hold these in our back pocket, you know, and as long as you're still around, we can just, you know, swap these transactions back and forth. So this was called a payment channel. And so the idea was that two parties could basically pay each other rapidly back and forth, uh, eventually closing out by, you know, spending the last transaction that they traded with the other party. Yeah, so, sure. So this, this was like, okay, that's pretty cool. I could, you know, so that that's one way of amortizing costs, right? Because we only have to have like one Bitcoin trend, well, two Bitcoin transactions, one to open this channel, and then one to close it. And we can do like hundreds or even thousands of transactions. That's great if I want to pay you hundreds or thousands of times. And there are some models where that actually works, but it doesn't let me pay anyone else. The Lightning paper did a couple of interesting things. One is originally these channels were, bi- were, were single directional. I could pay you, but you couldn't use the same channel to pay me. You had to have a separate one. So these are like you know single one-way channels. The Lightning Paper introduced the, had a, a method of doing this, these two-way channels, um, which was kind of interesting. But more importantly, I think, they introduced this idea that if I've got a channel to you and you have a channel to Joe over there, I can actually use you to pay Joe without trusting you. Right? I don't have to send you a dollar and say, hey, can you pay this to Joe? There's this way of making sure that um, I can do a conditional payment to you and says, okay, cool. Here's a dollar. If you pay 99 cents to Joe, he'll give you the secret and that will let you get the money off me. Right? And this is all written in like you know the, the scripting language, the smart contracts that go on the blockchain. So it's really, really hard. You know, it, it, As long as Bitcoin still works, right? you can guarantee that this payment will work. It will either go through or it will fail. And the only way it will succeed is if you actually make the payment almost to Joe. And so these channels now form a whole network. You can kind of send payments through all these parties and you don't have to trust them. The worst they can do is not forward your payment. And these things have a timeout. So, you know, worst things that happen, they time out, they, they, you know, and, and it fails. Um, but the incentive is that you pay a tiny fee to them to try to succeed. So they only get paid if they succeed. So obviously it's in their interest to, to try to make sure this stuff works. And that produces this, what is now called the Lightning Network. So this paper dropped three and a half years ago of like, here's something cool we could do. But interestingly, the two people who wrote the paper, um, uh, Taj Dreiger and Joseph Poon, weren't actually gonna implement it. They were like, well, it's kind of cool, but we have day jobs, right? Um, and that happened to be the time that I was joining Blockstream. And um, I read the paper, couldn't make head or tails of it. It had a lot of, you know, it was like really, really dense um, and kind of scattered. Um, but finally, after the third time I read it, I figured out all the pieces. They kind of described all the trees, but never the forest. And so I wrote a series of blog posts on, hey, here's, here's how to understand the lightning paper. Um, and so I'd kind of pull those pieces together so that anyone could kind of understand what the potential was here. Um, and then when I was finally joining Blockstream, um, the CTO, Greg Maxwell, said, we've decided you should work on Lightning, right? Because, you know, you wrote some blog posts, you've got to be like an expert, right? <laughs> so, so I was like, oh, okay. Um, mainly because um, it was one of those technologies that we really wanted to exist, right? The fact that we've been shown it was possible to, to build this kind of thing on top of Bitcoin meant 
obviously we want it to exist you know it would make bitcoin much more usable it would be great for our clients and everything else since no one else was doing it it made sense for us to step up and and you know and, and try to push that technology forward so um you know we started playing with it we did some refinements on the you know the formulations in the paper and we you know started working towards it but we weren't the only ones um Taj and Joseph did actually end up forming a company um, to develop Lightning. Um, and then another company, uh, Async uh, in Paris, um, decided also to do a Lightning implementation. And then about um, two years ago in Milan, we had a summit. Three, the sort of three groups kind of came together and thrashed out what the canonical spec for this would look like. Because nobody really wanted to have three different implementations which didn't work together. Right, we wanted a single network, so we had to agree on all the protocol details and everything else. Um, and we were optimistic after we did that that you know it'll take six months for us to get something working. And of course, you know this is software, so it took like you know eighteen months. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, now we're at the stage where you know the lightning uh, lightning clients are something. You know, they're all kind of in beta, beta, and they're all you know cautions all over them, right? Don't put in any money you can't afford to lose. So think think a network for beer money rather than you know um, you know. Uh, massive, you know, high finance, um, but this is something you can install and you can you can make payments through the Lightning Network. And and at this stage, it's pretty much the the, the motivation is you know you you can encourage us to you know find the bugs and test stuff and and play around with it. Um, you know, and you can buy hats and, and and stickers from the Blockstream Lightning Store, and you know there are a few other places that you can you know you can spend your hard-earned satoshis and things like that. Um, so we're definitely in that sort of you know alpha kind of early beta stage. Um, yeah, sure, so sure. Yeah, and then so there are three main implementations or three big teams who are working on it. So I think there's Async, the the French uh, the Paris team, and then you've got um, the LND. Uh, software by Lightning Labs. Yep. Uh, oh, and for listeners, uh, just check out episode nine of my podcast. That is with Brian Vu. He's the VP of product at Lightning Labs. And then finally, you guys. So tell us a little bit about C Lightning and what you guys are working on. And um, maybe just tell us a little bit about how it's being used out in the wild. Yeah. So um, C Lightning, I mean, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a C programmer. So, you know, we I wrote Lightning D, um, and to differentiate from the others, we decided to call it like we've kind of rebranded to C Lightning. Although the fact that it's implemented in C is really kind of a you know like an implementation detail for geeks, but you know that that name seemed to have stuck. So uh, we're more server side. So everyone else is pretty good at making payments. Uh, we're optimized for kind of receiving payments. You know, you're running a storefront. You most of the time you want to receive payments. You're not making a huge number. Um, so we don't have a mobile client, for example. Um, although there is a nice mobile remote control for it now. Um, but you know, it's basically it's a it's a server class kind of uh, implementation. Um, and most of our of our time is spent these days is is you know trying to keep up with the spec because there are a whole bunch of options that you people that. We've added to the spec to support different use cases, um, as we've discovered, you know, pain points that people have and things like that. Um, so at the moment, it's it's very much sort of chasing uh, chasing those optional spec um, uh, spec things, um, you know, just improving UX, um, uh, some performance work in there. Uh, you know, we run reasonably comfortably on a Raspberry Pi, but you do need a full Bitcoin node at the moment. And one of the the big uh, areas of work is trying to you know how much of a light node can we can we still run a, a have decent security uh and and run at that point and that that work's being read, led really by the lnd team from lightning labs they're doing some really mm. great work the neutrino right the neutrino stuff is is mind-blowing and it's it's really independent of, of lightning it's just um 
a roast beef um, uh, Lalu their 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 head um, head programmer basically went. You know, I hate all the you know the the light client options that we have at the moment. We basically need a new protocol, um, and went ahead with that. So I'm really looking forward to that getting into Bitcoin Core. And there's some great great theoretical work, and that will benefit all the boats. Even if you're not using Lightning, um, I expect the next generation of light clients to use Neutrino really heavily, and it's much nicer for privacy. Um, so you know, there's been some side benefits like that that have been just really fantastic to see, um, and it's certainly something that we're itching to. Um, to implement as well, so try not to get distracted, but it is very cool tech. So, um, so that that may come along as an open source project. Of course, you know we get people coming by and contributing stuff. And we go, well, okay, we didn't plan to include that, but thanks, uh, we'll put that in now, like way ahead of schedule. Um, for example, you know we have tour support, um, and it was kind of you know we wanted tour support at some point, but uh, a contributor came by and just basically dropped tour support in our laps, and. Um, so that's that was like great, thank you. That's that's included in the zero point six <laughs> release, you know. Oh, very um, nice. So yeah, it does make it hard for me to kind of give a roadmap. Um, you know, I can talk about the things that I'm working on, which is the stuff in front of me, but you know, there's always these surprises. Um, the other thing that's happening is so so you know, not enough of my time, but um, as much as I can spare goes into trying to maintain the spec and kind of you know keep that. Um, you know, that collaboration going um, because the spec is really the ground document on which all the implementations are based. Um, you can't write a spec in isolation. You need to kind of, you know, play with things and go, okay, that didn't work. And, and that feed, that feeds back into the spec. And, and all three teams are very active um, in, in getting that spec together. But uh, the 1.0 beta spec has, has, you know, has been out for a while. Um, and we're looking at kind of a 1.1 uh, with some you know some significant enhancements, all of which will be backwards compatible, um, and that will be kicked off in November. We're having the second summit, um, a Lightning Developer Summit. Um, the final invitations went out uh, actually just this morning because I'm slack and was meant to do it last month, um, but uh, that will actually be held in Adelaide. So um, it will be kind of cool to have all these uh, Lightning Lightning devs um, in my hometown. Um, get to show them around and spend a couple of days like uh, geeking out over the the lightning protocol yeah so uh, excellent so what are some potential developments or features that you guys might be tossing around at that meetup right so um it's pretty clear that um splicing in and splicing out are really important so at the moment you have a channel but if you want to get funds out of the channel onto chain or you want to beef the channel up um we decided for 1.0 like a you shut the channel down, you start a new one. Um, but in theory, you can have um, you know, add funds into the channel from on-chain. You want, you want to put some more money in or, hey, I actually want to pay someone on-chain. I've got funds in my channel. Can we you know, splice payments out um, and, and do that without any downtime? So instead of having to bring your channel down and then get a new, new, new transaction through and everything else, you can do that while you're still using the channel normally. Um, and that's definitely something that will you know will be a, a hot topic in November and exactly the details of how we do that and how that negotiation occurs um, that's kind of important and one of the other things that we're probably going to change is at the moment we you know I said you kind of you trade back and forth these transactions right so you're holding this transaction so that if something goes wrong you can just drop that on the blockchain and, and get your money that way um, the problem is of course fees you know, we uh, you talked about this before fee prediction and, and we talked about I talked about the difficulties of doing that well the problem with having a holding a transaction that's pre-signed by the other side and you're, you're ready to go is you don't know when you're going to need it and you know 
fee predict, you know, fee prediction is hard in the short term, but you know, trying to do it in the long term, you might want this in a month's time. What a fee is going to be um, is really hard. And so we kind of punted and went, well, we'll grossly overpay fees, but even that may be insufficient. And it turns out that you know, you may not agree what grossly overpaying fees is. The other side may go, that's too low. I want you know, the fees to be higher. And you may go, no, that's ridiculous. I'm not paying ridiculously high fees. I think you're insane, right? So um, it turns out this is actually a significant problem. So we're actually probably going to change the basis um, of the way the transactions work so that they will pay minimum fees and you will basically attach a parent transaction um, that uh, at the time you want to spend it to basically push this transaction through. So that time, that way you don't have to guess in advance what the fees are going to be, um, and that's what that's one of our pain points at the moment. So that's something else going to go, going to go through uh, in November. We've already got some discussion around that. But one of the other things on the flip side is the ability to split uh, payments. So at the moment you've got to find you know you, you know the case I want to pay Joe. And I go cool. I've got a connection to you. You've got a connection to Joe. Um, you know, I've got to. Uh, you, you, we've got to have capacity in those channels. You've got to have enough money in your channel to pay that to Joe, for example. And I don't have any visibility into that. We talk about longer routes; it gets a lot harder, right? Kind of go, you know, can I find somebody who's got enough money to pay into Joe? Um, so, if you could split the payment into small pieces, and yet Joe only gets it if he gets all the pieces, it's still all or nothing, but you can split it somehow. Um, then it lets you be much more flexible in the way you you, you route payments. Um, if something fails, you might try, well, let's try a smaller payment. Maybe that will work, and then I can pay the rest somewhere else. Um, and that's called AMP. Um, yeah. uh, it's another another lightning-contrived acronym, which is great. <laughs> Atomic oh. Multipath Payment, right? Thank you. Atomic Multipath Payment. So, um, you know, uh, and that, that again came out of the Lightning Labs team. Um, and so we're probably going to finalize the way we do AMP. Um, I imagine at the November meeting, and that's that's pretty exciting for us as Lightning geeks. So um, there there are other things that are further down the track. So uh, Christian Decker at Blockstream came up with this idea called L two E L T double O, and it is uh, a more flexible uh, variant of Lightning that we can do with a soft fork in Bitcoin that we hope will come through at some point. We probably won't spend too much time discussing that in November because it does require a Bitcoin change, and you know. The timeline for that has to be, you know, would it be at least six months before we could use it? So, you know, um, that may be something that we look in like a, a 1.2 or a 2.0 spec, but probably won't feature heavily uh, in November. Although I think that that is incredibly exciting, and you know, um, it, it's it's going to keep us employed for quite a while. But um, but yeah, it's 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 probably we've got more than enough to discuss in the two days on on sort of the um, uh, sort of the just the nits, the things that we've learned from from basically having the network working and and how well that's working, um, you know, and there's, there's a whole lot of other minor protocol changes that, that we want to make, um, and so yeah, so you know, it'll be it'll be two get days of us sort of geeking out and then trying to trying to it, we, we won't complete the spec in that time, but we will definitely get a kickoff and we'll get like a hit list of stuff that we really want in, um, and probably a list of things that we're going to push off again, which is what we did last time. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I'm really excited about it. It's, it's it, Milan was was really energizing, uh, very intense, um, and you know, the result of that was the Bolt standards, um, the 11 documents that came out of that, which you know, several hundred thousand words later. So, um, you know, we'll probably see a similar uh, a similar burst of, of, of verbiage um, come out of this time. Very cool. What about um, another feature that I've heard of? 
um, that people talk about is dual funding. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Okay. So dual funding. At the moment, the person who connects pretty much, you know, the person who proposes the channel puts the money in, right? Um, they also pay all the fees, by the way. They go, cool, you know. I'll put the money in and I'll, I'll, I'll pay the fees. And in some ways that's fair, right? The person receiving it is like, well, there's no harm in me accepting the channel from you because it's not costing me anything, right? Um, but there are many cases where you actually, and the problem with, with, with you know, I set, up a funnel to, I set up a channel to you and I fund it all. I put, yeah, I put a hundred bucks in or whatever. Um, you can't pay me with that channel now because, you know, it's, it's paying a hundred bucks to me and zero to you, right? So, sorry. So, you know, you can't go, oh, we'll pay minus 10 to me and pay 110 to you, right? You can't do that. So um, for a lot of scenarios, it makes sense for me to go, I want to open a channel and go, cool, well, I'll put, look, I'll put 20 bucks in, you put 80 bucks in. Um, and that way, at least, you know, I'll be able to pay you $20 with the channel, right? It'll be a lot more balanced uh, and things like that. There are a number of cases where you actually want both sides to fund the channel. Uh, rather than just having one. Um, the other way we could do it is splicing. We could start, you know, one side starts with it all open, the other side, cool, but I want to splice this in. That's just a bit less efficient. So it does make sense to allow this case where you have this mutual negotiation. Um, and yeah, again, sure. it was something that was cut from 1.0 of the spec because it was like, you know, it was already getting pretty complicated. So definitely something that people want. Um, mm, yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, another question I'd, I've got to ask you. Now, one of my prior guests, Nick Bartia. So listeners, you can check out SLP episode seven. Now he spoke about this concept of lightning network reference rate. And he, what he was talking about there was this concept of earning interest, an interest rate on the Bitcoin that is staked, so to speak, in, or opened into a channel open into a lightning network payment channel. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so, so I found it fascinating because I'd never really thought of it in that way. Um, I think it's wrong, but I do think it's interesting. So um, it, it's wrong one because you don't have visibility into all the money in the network. Um, you have so um, you do have uh, public nodes. So nodes can go yes, the, the, here's, here's, here are my public channels. You know, I advertise them so that you can use them to route. You know, and you will pay me a small fee for it. Um, uh, but there are many channels that that are not. Um, uh, that, that, are, that are completely private and they're only, you know, basically I use them for my own payments, but I don't really want anyone else to route through them. So they're, they're just private to me. And so um, it's hard to script the network that way. Um, but you also end up with this dual funded case where you go, well, I'm on the network anyway, because I want to make payments, but hey, I might as well, um, I might as well route for other people because I'm up anyway, right? So um, the, the cost for doing that for me is zero. So um, the fee I'm going to charge is going to be almost zero, right? It's going to be as small as, as, as I can imagine. So what happens, I think, in, in real life is that um, uh, fees drop uh, to, to like, you know, as close to zero as they can be. Um, in fact, some people might just put zero fees in. They might just go, well, what the hell? Um, in fact, there's an argument that if you want someone to rebalance your channel, if you go, hmm, you know, I really want, you know, there's too much on one side of the channel. I really want to rebalance it. I should just advertise zero fees and let other people route through it in order to do that work for me. Um, but certainly it's a race at the bottom on fees. Um, and it should ideally um, be a question of the risk that is involved with running a node, right? So, you know, how much do I worry about this node getting hacked? It's got these funds in it, you know, uh, because basically um, a Lightning node is a hot wallet. Um, which is disturbing until you realize that anything that made Bitcoin more useful was going to increase risk. If you want to use your Bitcoin, it has to be in a hot wallet. So any technology that lets you use your Bitcoin means you know, you're going to be in a hot wallet at some point. So 
you know, um, so, so basically it should price in the risk of holding that Bitcoin, how much you value this Bitcoin. Unfortunately, we've learned that people are terrible at assessing risk. There is always somebody who will think they're smarter than you are and they will judge their risk to be lower. Um, so I'm pretty sure fees are going to zero, like, you know, maybe not technically zero, but, you know, very much in the noise on Lightning. Um, so I think this idea that you will be able to make money by having a node that routes um, is wrong because there'll always be someone who's, you know, even less risk averse than you are, um, who will who will try to undercut you, but also because there is enough economic activity and there are reasons for people to be on the network that don't involve them making fees of other people. So um, they will just suppress the price. Um, and so while I think it's an interesting idea that you could measure this, I think in practice it's going to be you know uh, more a technical decision of what is the minimum fee non-zero fee that you can represent in the protocol. It's going to answer. Yeah. yeah, fascinating. Yeah. I mean, and that you sort of touched on what my next question was going to be. I was actually combing through some of your uh, documentation and I found um, there's a C lightning command called get route and it actually incorporates a risk factor. And so, and, and in the documentation, it says, you know, for example, if you thought there was a 1% chance that a node would fail and it would cost you 20% per annum, then the risk factor would be 20. Yeah. So this is the delay, right? So, um, so what happens is if a node goes down halfway through, then you have to wait for the timeout. So, so I talked about how we chain payments, um, but um, the way that works in practice is I say to you, cool, um, you have, if you get me the secret in the next you know, 20 blocks, um, I'll make this payment. Otherwise, you know, otherwise the money's coming back to me. You turn around to, to Joe and go, cool, Joe, um, if you give me the secret in the next 10 blocks, um, then I'll give you the money. Otherwise, it comes back to me. Because you need to have time. If he gives you the secret right at the end of the window that you've given him, you have to have the time to turn around to me and you know get through to me and, and take the money off me, right? So there's this kind of staggered delay. Um, so that means that if I talk to you and then you vanish off the network, I now have to wait 20 blocks before I can before that's cancelled, right? So there's this kind of the risk is that somebody goes down at the wrong time and you have to wait to get your money back, you know. And so you go, well, how much is my money worth? How long is that? And that's why fees on Lightning are proportional fees, right? Because it's like, how much is at risk and how long would it be, right? So that's the, the, the basis for fee charging, which interestingly is very different from Bitcoin, where Bitcoin is charged by weight. Um, I like to think of the Bitcoin network as a courier who doesn't care what they're sending. They just care how much it weighs. So you can send $100 by a courier as a, like $100 note, you're fine. You try to send it as 100 pennies, they're going to charge you a fortune. Um, and the Bitcoin network works the same way. It's the weight of the transaction, number of inputs and outputs, and the size of the whole thing that they care about, not how much money is being transferred. Whereas in Liquid, sorry, in Lightning, we care. Like it's it's actually proportional to the amount being spent, which is why Lightning makes sense for tiny, tiny payments because it's proportional, right? If you're sending a Satoshi through me, I'm going to charge you a tiny fee because you know if if things get stuck and I have to wait a day, it's one Satoshi. I don't care. Um, you know, a 10 to the minus eighth of a Bitcoin. So um, so that's why Lightning is, is so so nice for tiny, tiny payments. Um, and it doesn't make so much sense when you get really big payments. One, because you've got to find the channel capacity that you can route that through all these people, right? And the bigger it is, the fewer channels you've got to choose from. But also because uh, fees are proportional, right? At some point, it'll be cheaper just to use a damn Bitcoin transaction. Um, so there's, there's, you know, there's this natural kind of... Um, uh, sort of cohabitation where you get Bitcoin up here and you get like, you know, Bitcoin via lightning down here. Um, so I think that's worth pointing out as well.
Mm, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, one other point I just wanted to clarify a little bit uh, from the discussion earlier around the risk factors. My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, that is due to the what we might call the cascading nature of the hash time lock contracts on a multi-hop yep. sort of journey. Is that the reason? Yeah, yeah. It's because you have to off. You know, basically the time will, will drop across every every node that you're sending. So you send through twenty nodes, and each one has decided they want like a five block window between you know them offering money to the next hop um, and then being able to accept it from the hop behind them so you know they they, they you want to make sure there's a bit of a gap right um mm. because what the way it actually works is they pay out before they connect they receive them funds from behind them right they've got to make sure there's enough time there that they can do that so they all incorporate a little, a little bit of buffer there right um so uh, that of course is cumulative across the hops so if you're at the end, that's kind of the worst case. You you end up waiting the longest in the in the absolute disaster case. Um, so yeah, you basically just multiply how likely do you think that is to happen by how much you think you know it would cost you to have those funds tied up, um, and that you know that, that's the risk factor in the get route. And it basically takes that into account and goes, okay, well that node's actually asking for a really long delay, um, but it's a really small fee, so you know you have to figure out what's the time value of your money uh, in order to make that decision on, on which 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 way you to you you route your payments right sure that's fascinating yeah it's really good thanks for the explanation on that okay um well i think they're pretty much the key points i had on lightning the next area that i was keen to ask you about is around development and de- development practices uh now rusty you come from the linux kernel development world and now you're involved with Bitcoin and Lightning. Do you have any thoughts on how their programming and development culture differs? Yeah, so at, at, at the root, when you talk to developers, it's very much the same sort of open source culture um, that you know has been shaped a lot by the Linux kernel culture. But almost every project uses a very similar kind of similar methodology, similar tools, similar thought processes on on how and why you would do this. I mean, when I started my career um, sort of in, in 97, really, full-time as an open source programmer, um, that was really weird. Um, you know, it, it was actually more, it was more understandable to be a full-time open source programmer, at least I was being paid at a normal salary. But, but you know, why you would volunteer to, to hack on random things um, was not the norm at the time. It was seen as really unusual. It was, it, there wasn't a clear model of why you would do this. Um, how would you make money out of open source was the, such a common question. Um, and now it's become pretty much the norm. You know, uh, pe- people hack on this stuff, one, because it's fun, two, because, you know, they, they develop a network, and, and three, because it can turn into, like, you know, an employable activity and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it's definitely in the interest of programmers to collaborate on these these projects also you know that you know, collaborating with a group of intelligent peers is always it's always a fascinating experience and you learn a lot so um th- those norms are tend to be across almost every open source project and and certainly the bitcoin project and uh the kernel project very much uh similar in those ways um one of the differences is that uh, from from sort of a surface point of view, you go well. Linus is in charge of the kernel. He's like the you know, he's he's the big boss, and it's very clear. And this, there is no big boss of uh, of, of Bitcoin, for example. But on a day to day level, it doesn't really make a huge amount of difference because um, in practice, that you know, there are maintainers who look after specific parts of the Linux kernel, um, and they're the you know, whichever one you're working on, they're the person you're going to be interacting with and going, you know, and and, and you know, submitting patches to and getting feedback from. Um, I mean, 
you know, I was dealing with the very core part of Linux, the module subsystem. So you know, I was dealing directly with Linux sometimes, but pretty much, you know, he would leave you on your own and, you know, unless something blew up, you would be left to, to your own devices. So it wasn't as sort of centralized as that may seem. Um, so there are definitely a lot of similarities in the way the, the projects work. Um, there's also a lot of similarities in the sort of uh, the early days of Linux and just the um, uh, you know, it was a toy, right? Nobody took it seriously. Um, you know, it was it was never gonna. You know, uh, there were the true believers who thought you know it was going to take over the world, and and there was the rest of the world who really didn't you know didn't didn't take it seriously at all. Um, and you very much see that uh, in kind of the Bitcoin project. Um, a lot of kind of misunderstanding of of what of what uh, Bitcoin developers are trying to do. Um, and and so you know that that's kind of a fascinating fascinating thing for me because you know, when I joined Linux it was very much the you know um, the crazy long haired hippies trying to trying to do this stuff you know, they're never going to take over from you know the dominant players in, in computing um, and you know obviously that happened uh, so you know there's, there's more you know, um, certainly it's probably one of the widest most widely deployed operating systems on the planet, given all the Android phones out there, certainly that run Linux. So, you know, uh, we kind of won. Um, and what's interesting there is that that's not the way most Linux developers thought we were going to win, right? They thought that, you know, we, it was going to be the year of the Linux desktop uh, from 1999 and almost every year afterwards. It's like, when's it going to be the year of the Linux desktop, right? When are we going to take on Microsoft? And it was always this assumption that the purpose of Linux was to basically be a better Windows. Um, and, you know, that never happened, right? You may notice Microsoft's still in business. Windows is still a thing. And um, and yet it was incredibly successful um, on devices that didn't even exist back when the Linux project started. I think that's a really important lesson. It's very hard to predict the future like that. When you've got some interesting technology, it may just, you know, route around existing technologies. You know, um, the idea that, Bitcoin will kill Visa is one of these things that I think, you know, hold on, I've seen this tale before and it doesn't end how you expect. So, you know, I, I think, um, I think so, so the, there are these elements definitely like in the Bitcoin project. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that I did um, when, when we started with, you know, the collaboration in the Lightning side particularly was look at both the Linux ecosystem and the Bitcoin ecosystem particularly and say, we want to deliberately set out to make something that's much more inclusive, much more friendly, um, much more collaborative uh, than certainly, you know, that the, there was some, some sort of, you know, bad blood in the, in the Bitcoin space at the time. And it was like, you know, hey, we kind of want to try to avoid that if we can. Um, and so I think you'll find like the lightning, uh, development community, particularly, um, we had the advantage of being much smaller, of course, um, having you know, not having the same level of pressure on us. But um, we're extremely collaborative, and you know, I, I, everyone gets along extremely well. Um, and a number of people have remarked to me, you know, coming into the development community, just how much you know how nice everyone is to each other. Um, and that was something that that we explicitly uh, highlighted as something that we want, because you know, we want to work on this stuff, you know. I expect to be working on this stuff still in 10 years, right? So you know, I want it to be a nice place to work. Um, and so that that is is one thing that we've kind of tried to deliberately uh, cultivate uh, on the Lightning side. And I think so far, touch wood, uh, we've done pretty well. Yeah, that's some great insight into Bitcoin and particularly Lightning development. Uh, how about the recent 
news on the Linux code of conduct and the supposed, uh, you know, the diversity uh, co- contrasted with meritocracy. Do you want, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so this this is you know this is this is a debate that's been going on at least ten years uh, in sort of the open source community and, and things like that. Um, as you know, we realised that you know on the surface everything's a meritocracy and everything else, but there are certainly um, there are certainly advantages uh, for certain people in a meritocracy uh, in this sort of pure meritocracy. Uh, in practice, you know, I think it is you know. Um, uh, you know, people have unconscious biases that I do think play into that. And even though they might think that they're operating purely for technical reasons and everything else, we know um, that people are biased in various ways and that that can accumulate. So the idea that, you know, you should compensate for that has been one of these these, these bigger questions that have been over projects um, like the Linux kernel. Um, from, from my point of view, certainly the Linux uh, community, um, we're building a product that we hope will eventually be used by a massively broad range of people. Um, and it's re- we're making design decisions, we're making protocol decisions and stuff now that affects them without them even knowing it, right? So, so we're making assumptions about how people are going to use this and, and, and what their priorities are um, that are going to be baked into the system and kind of hard to change. So I think just from that point of view, the more diverse input we have, uh, at this early formative stage, the better fit that is going to be uh, for what people actually want to do. Um, you know, I remember somebody saying to me that um, trying to explain you know, sound money, like why Bitcoin is so important to an American is like explaining water to a fish. Um, if you've got money that works almost all the time and it hasn't had you know major inflation collapses and everything else, you don't understand why these things are important. Um, and I think uh, <clears throat> um, we kind of, uh, it, it's easy to kind of fall into that trap of having, you know, uh, of making assumptions about how things will be used because you have a very fixed, small experience. And I think getting, getting a broader uh, set of viewpoints in is really, really critical. And just saying we're a meritocracy and basically just, you know, continuing to interact with only people the same as yourself uh, doesn't get you there. So it is something that I think is, you know, uh, certainly uh, I've become more aware of uh, in my work in the last 10 years. And I think this is seeping through to different people. This is actually an important thing that doesn't just happen. Um, But from a personal point of view, um, you know, I'm always kind of horrified that geeks generally were these people who weren't treated well in school and they were kind of the outcasts and everything else. and surely this should be the last group of people who are going to then turn around and form their own clique and not let other people in for random reasons. So, you know, I think we have an obligation. If anybody basically really wants to work on Lightning and stuff like that, my job is to help them. Um, you know, and, and I feel really strongly that that, you know, that the number of people have given me breaks and given me assistance when I probably didn't deserve it. Um, or they didn't think, you know, I certainly didn't have the experience to justify the amount of time that they spent on me. Um, and so I feel, you know, when somebody comes along and they want to be part of the community and they're, and they're um, you know, uh, and, and they have something to add, um, you know, it's really important that we, you know, uh, that we, well, on the one hand, we milk that, but also that we, you know, that we encourage that and that we, you know, treat them with the kind of respect that, that we were treated when we came in uh, that, that helped us stay. So, you know, 
I, this is the, as I said, this is a conversation that's been going on for a long time, and you know, it's interesting to see that Linus has finally kind of you know come around perhaps to this view that there is some some import in this, um, and I think you know different people are at different points of that progression. Yeah, um, sure. Okay. Well, that's that's been a fa- it's been a fascinating conversation. I've really enjoyed it, Rusty. Um, where can everyone find you online? And do you have any other you know projects or things that you want the listeners to come and find you at? Right. So um, usually people follow me at um, at Rusty Twit, um, at Rusty underscore Twit on Twitter, um, and that usually just shouts out to my you know Medium blog and things like that. Um, you know, but. Um, I'm usually around on sort of various media, but uh, uh, Twitter is usually the best way to follow along with the lightning stuff. Um, I just, I guess, um, I want to emphasize that we're still in the early days of this, right? There are um, still proposals come forward and go, wow, I didn't know we could do that. That's actually really cool. Um, and I think that's what keeps us so excited and keeps everyone kind of jazzed about this. Um, and, you know, uh, this is definitely something that is looking just looking at the adoption that we're seeing and, and how positive everything is going at the moment i feel is you know has got a huge future in, in front of it and i think you know it's an incredibly exciting thing to get involved in yeah fascinating I'm, yeah i'm really excited myself as well all right well i think that's pretty much it thanks very much rusty thanks for coming on well, thank you for having me all right that was my conversation with rusty russell i hope you guys enjoyed that discussion on the economic eras of bitcoin and if you're interested you can find the links for this on the show notes page, go to my website, stefanlivera.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-L-I-V-E-R-A.com. Search SLP23 and you can find all the links related to this episode. Uh, we also discussed the Lightning Network and some of the coming advances. Uh, and also, if you like this episode, you may be interested in some of the earlier episodes, such as episode 9 with Brian Vu, the VP of product at Lightning Labs, and also episode 7 with Nick Bartia. Otherwise, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you got value out of it, please do share it on social media as that really helps me out. That's it from me, guys. Thanks, and I'll speak to you next time.